Acts chapter 9. We began a few weeks ago, before Holy Week, into Acts chapter 9, as we are working through the book of Acts, verse by verse, and now we return to it. We'll read together the second part of verse 19, down through verse 31, as we see the after effects of Saul of Tarsus, better known to us as Paul, as we see the after effects of his conversion early on in his life. So let's read together in Acts chapter 9, verse 19 down through verse 31. This is God's word. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And when they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. For the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplying. May God's Spirit bless to us the reading of his word. We saw a couple of weeks ago as we began Acts chapter 9 that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love. I mentioned to you that quote from the old Puritan Richard Sibbs that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And that's very true. And that's incredibly encouraging to us. We know from the story of Paul, Saul of Tarsus, that he was no normal sinner, if there is such a thing. All of us are more wretched than we think we are. But when you look at a guy like Saul of Tarsus, he was the chief of those kinds of people. Jack read to us a bit ago from 1 Timothy chapter 1. That's, all, that's how Paul saw himself. He called himself the chief or the foremost of sinners. And he saw himself as such because of what he had done. He had killed God's people. He was complicit in their annihilation, in their murder. And yet in the person of Saul of Tarsus, we see Jesus pursuing him. There is 
more mercy in God than sin in us. This means that you are not beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love and the people in your lives that you think are, aren't. Your unbelieving parents, they are not beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love. Your, your unbelieving co-worker who delights in talking about the things that they enjoy that are antithetical to God's law, they are not beyond the reach of Jesus' gracious love. We also learned in the beginning of Paul's story of conversion that Jesus has rescued us that we might testify to his powerful, gracious love. And so in many ways, one of the best things that we can do after we understand our reception of grace, that Christ has saved us, is to testify to this. You see Paul doing this throughout the rest of his life. One of the most powerful things that he did was just testify to what God had done for him. So this means that Paul never forgot who he was, and he did not forget what had been done for him. You may never be a master theologian. You may never be able to read Greek and Hebrew, but you can tell your story, and your story of conversion is a powerful story. But as we come into this section today, which really begins in the second part of verse 19 and goes down through verse 31, we learn, first of all, that we must take heart, for Jesus is always at work to build and preserve his church. So I say to you today, take heart. Jesus is always at work to build and preserve his church. How do we see this here in this section? Well, let's trace the fingerprints of Jesus' work here in Acts chapter 9. We've already seen that he has rescued this persecutor of the church. But he does more than that as we read down through this section. Notice, first of all, that he gives people to Saul of Tarsus, to Paul, to come around him and to help him. In simplest of terms, we call this discipleship. They would have been very scared of Saul of Tarsus. They knew through some kind of channels that he had come to their city to kill them. He was not some warm and fuzzy guy. You get the impression that Paul took great delight in doing what he was charged to do. In fact, we see if you look back in verse 2 of Acts chapter 9 that he asks the high priests for letters to go to the synagogues at Damascus that he might bring more people back to Jerusalem that they might be arrested and killed. He wasn't just charged with this task, he sought it out. Paul was not a warm and fuzzy guy. He was not a safe guy. Paul took great delight in his own cognitive abilities and his own learning and his own position, seeking to advance in the religion of Judaism, even at the expense of others, even at the expense of the murder of others to advance himself. And yet what happens after he comes to faith in Jesus, the risen Lord, he is surrounded by disciples, verse 19b. This means that they accepted him 
pretty quickly. This says something about them, that they were willing to set aside their fears and their misgivings to take him in. But it also shows that Jesus knew very well what Saul of Tarsus needed. Now, when it came to understanding the Old Testament, which was the Bible that the early church had, Saul outstripped them. He, he knew way more than them. He was basically peerless when it came to his understanding of the Old Testament. Nobody really measured up. It's likely that he knew it by heart. Things weren't broken up into chapters and verses back then, but if you would have said, hey, what does Leviticus 19 verse 2 said? He could have quoted it to you and, and preached a sermon on it. And yet there was something lacking in his understanding. These disciples in Damascus had already embraced Jesus as their expected Messiah, as their Savior, and as their Lord. Their hearts had warmed to Christ. They were, they were legitimate. They were the real deal. They had walked with Jesus, the risen Lord, long enough that their lives had been transformed. And despite all of Paul's learning, which will later show up in, in great might and power, and the planting of churches all over the Gentile world, he was a novice in the faith at this point. Which means that he needed people around him who would love him, who would embrace him, and would instruct him. Which means that we have to know stuff as Christians. There's a cognitive aspect to it. We are to know doctrinal truth. We are to know the Bible. But there's more to it than just that. We have to embrace it with our affections. And that's what Paul needed. Paul didn't so much need someone to tell him what the Old Testament said. Again, the Bible of the early church. But he needed people to show him Jesus in the Old Testament. How he was all over the place. And how sinners could never be justified, could be made right with God, declared to be not guilty by their own efforts, but it was purely an act of grace. It must have been really fascinating for Paul to sit down with these people that, that he knew the, better, the Bible better than, and yet to see in them a real faith which was much stronger and genuine than his own. What must it have been like, perhaps, for the disciples in Damascus to open up the the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. Maybe they unrolled the scroll of the first half of Genesis. And they read about Abraham. How Abraham believed God, Genesis chapter 15. And it was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. Paul would later talk about this in his writing to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 4. But Maybe early in these days as he sat with the disciples in Damascus and read about how Abraham had been justified by faith. He could connect the dots and say, that's what happened to me on the road to Damascus when I was seeking to kill more Christians. That's what God's always done. And that's why I missed it. Because I was trying to establish my righteousness through my efforts. But the Bible clearly depicts 
But the one that Abraham expected to come, the Messiah, was his only hope. And Jesus is my only hope. These disciples that Jesus brought alongside Saul of Tarsus were incredibly necessary, not only in drawing Paul's attention to who Jesus really was, about how salvation could really be granted, but also to change Paul's affections. The Jesus that he hated became the chief object of affection of Paul's life. And reading the Bible alone could not do that. He needed people to come alongside him to lead him to those conclusions and encourage him toward that. This means that as Luke later wrote this down in Acts chapter 9, we know that he later became one of Paul's traveling companions, that, that maybe they sat together. And despite the fact that Paul became such a mighty theologian, in, in so many ways, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the most important man that lived other than Jesus over the last 2,000 years, that these people that he spent these early days with were so critical to his early formation. Jesus brought people around Paul to help him. And then he empowered Paul to preach the gospel. And this would have been incredibly impactful. Because this one who formerly was a persecutor of the church, hauling people off to jail and prison to kill them, now he's doing the opposite. He confesses that Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord, really is the expected Messiah. And no one can be saved except through him. The church in Damascus and in the surrounding region had been preaching that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified to take the punishment of men and women, lost sinners. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. And as Saul gave his testimony, as he told about his story of conversion, he testified to the risen Lord. There's no other way to explain Saul's conversion. Saul had seen the risen Lord on the way to Damascus, Jesus appearing to him, and Saul believed. There's no other way to explain Saul's conversion. And so as he testifies to the risen Lord, more and more people believe. Then later in verses 23 through 25, Paul's life is threatened. It may well be that Paul came to Damascus initially, of course, to kill more Christians, but was converted. And then early on, these disciples came around him. And then as we learn later on from the book of Galatians chapter 1, Paul went away into the desert, basically, in Arabia, and Jesus personally instructed him there. If you don't mind, turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to read about that together for just a moment. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul says in Galatians 1:11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, 
but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. That seems to be the interval that we learn about here in Acts chapter 9. Luke is not explicitly clear about it, but putting together what we know in Galatians chapter 1 with Acts chapter 9, there is a period of about three years going on here. So here's the idea. Paul goes to Damascus, is converted, spends some initial time with the church there. Then Jesus separates him to be alone with himself. Jesus is going to be his seminary teacher in many ways, taking all the things that Paul knew about the Old Testament and reshaping it. And then sends him back to Damascus. So though these verses recorded by Luke are are quick, and you don't see much of an interval, putting it together with Galatians chapter 1, there's a three-year interval here. But when he comes back, his reputation has grown. He, He knows more and more about Christ and his exclusive ability to save. And he preaches this. And his preaching is conclusive and it's powerful, and it's having effect. And what does this do to the Jews around him? It makes them angry. So these are not the Jewish Christians that plot to kill him. These are the Jews like Paul used to be, people who reject Christianity, people who reject the notion that Jesus is the risen Christ. So what do they want to do? They want to do what Paul used to want to do. They want to stamp him out because his preaching is having effect. More and more people are coming to faith in Jesus. But he finds out about it and tells his friends, and they let him down in a big basket, kind of like a giant hamper, down through a hole in the wall so that he can escape. So what is Jesus doing here? He's already surrounded Paul with the kind of people who will help him. As we learn from Galatians chapter 1, he takes Paul into Arabia to train him and teach him and prepare him to be a preacher of the gospel. And then when his life is under threat, he becomes aware of it and preserves his life. Later on, he'll come down into Jerusalem. He hinted at this in Galatians chapter 1, for after three years he comes to Jerusalem. But they don't know who he really is. There had been a period of silence, it seems like, while Paul was away in Arabia. Word, I'm sure, had gotten to Jerusalem, to the disciples there, that he had been converted. But then he'd been gone for a while. Had he fallen away from the faith? Was it it a ruse? Was it a trick? And then he shows up again, and they're scared of him. But this guy Barnabas, this son of encouragement, believes him. And he comes alongside him. Barnabas and Paul were in many ways very opposite. Barnabas is a patient encourager. Paul is a builder. Paul is driven. But what did Paul, the 
the driving force of the planting of the early churches, what did he need? He needed a guy who was patient and encouraging to come alongside him. And that's who Jesus gave Paul at this phase. So Barnabas vouches for Paul to the disciples. And despite the fact that more Jews, verse 29, were seeking to kill Paul, he is sent away into other regions to preach the gospel. And then you find in verse 31 that because the chief persecutor of the church has now been converted, there was a period of peace and the church begins to be built up. And so the church walks in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit is multiplied. So what does this tell us? All of these evidences that Jesus is still at work to take care of his church. This painting that you see behind me, not super well, but maybe kind of, is a depiction of Martin Luther. When Luther, in his early monastic days, was reading the Bible, specifically reading from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Luther learned that we are justified by grace through faith. It's not our own doing. You may not be able to tell well from the picture behind me, but in those days, Bibles were chained to lecterns or to pulpits. This was partially because they were very expensive, and so they were hard to replace. They were copied by hand most of the time, and so they were incredibly valuable. But there's also some symbolism here for Luther's interpretation of the Bible had been chained to church tradition for a long time now. But as he reads these verses, these life-giving verses, that we are justified not by our efforts, but by Christ and our faith in him, the light comes in. So you can see the little window in the upper corner with the light shining through and Luther sort of gazing off into the distance astounded by the fact that all the sin that he knew was in himself could not condemn him if Christ saved him. This was Paul. There was so much sin in Paul that he deserved condemnation upon condemnation. But what did Jesus do? Jesus very literally shone from heaven and taught Paul of his gracious deliverance. Then Paul, like Luther, spent the rest of his life making Christ known. Paul's conversion was an absolute act of grace. The formation of this early church in Damascus and down in Jerusalem and in the surrounding region was an absolute work of grace. And so I say to you that we should take heart for Jesus is building his church. Let's look together in Matthew chapter 16. We should not be surprised that Jesus is faithful to build his church because he told us he would. Matthew chapter 16 verse 13 Jesus comes into the district of Caesarea Philippi and asks his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, 
but who do you say that I am? And they had spent the most time with him. They knew. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah is what that means. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's Jesus' promise. He says later on in Matthew 28, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, and he is with us until the end of the age. And so I say to you, people of God, take heart. Jesus is always at work to build and preserve his church. So parents, I say to you, take heart. Jesus is at work in your children's hearts to understand and trust Jesus. Take heart. For though you see many things in your children right now that you wish weren't the case, Jesus will be faithful to them. Do not turn to the law, parents, to create belief and trust in God. Give your children the gospel over and over again. You must instruct them, teaching them right and wrong, but only God can change their hearts. Take heart. He will be faithful. Take heart. Jesus is at work in our church. We are not all that we want to be. For sure, we are not all that we should be. But Jesus is at work in and among us. And we see this happening. Marriages are being strengthened. Children are being discipled. We are growing in our faith. We are growing in our desires for holy things and to make Jesus known. Jesus is at work in our church and he will build it and he will preserve it. And he is doing that all around the world. It is so easy for us who live in a secular society, a post-Christian society, to worry about the existence of the church in 10 years. Jesus will build and preserve his church. Honestly, as you look back through the annals of human history, even the last 2,000 years of the Christian church, it often is the case where darkness seems to push in the hardest and unbelief seems to reign that the church often flourishes the most. So we can take heart. Jesus is always at work to build and preserve his church. I mentioned to you a little while ago in prayer as we talked to God about our brothers and sisters in the United Arab Emirates. We have missionaries that we support there who are making the gospel of Christ known in that very dark place. About eight hours ago, maybe nine, I forget the time difference. Um, um, actually, that's not true because they meet on Fridays. So I won't try to do the math in my head. Um, the Muslim holy day is Friday, and so the Christian churches meet on Friday as well. So whatever, 24, 48 something hours ago, um, our brothers and sisters met 
in in Dubai and in Abu Dhabi and Ras Al Khaimah and Sharjah, these Emirates in the United Arab Emirates, and and there are churches there right now, um, approaching maybe like ten now around the country, uh, where there were not gospel preaching churches just several years ago. Churches gathered 48 hours or so ago, and they were packed. One of the primary churches that we have supported in the past has like 90 ethnicities that meet every single Friday. And the gospel is being proclaimed and, and people are, are believing in a place that is incredibly surprising. The gospel is going forward. Jesus will build his church. So we can take heart. Jesus is always at work to build and preserve his church. Now, I want to say to you before we move on and see how we respond to this, that, that we should care about this. It's very difficult for us who, who live the, the normal life that we live to, to think about this stuff. We can become so caught up in our jobs and our kids and our finances and everything else that, that we take very little thought of this except for perhaps when we gather together on Sundays. But, but why did Jesus rescue us from our sin? Jesus rescued us from our sin that he might be worshipped, that he might be, be glorified. And we should care that his church is built so that more and more people can worship him and glorify him and find their deepest joy in him. And herein, perhaps, is a, is a subtle suggestion for each of us to pursue repentance. Here's what I mean. If, if this doesn't touch us, if this doesn't cause us to, to consider what we really value, that the church of Jesus Christ is, is going forward, that disciples are being grown, that more and more converts are being made. If we, if we haven't thought about that in recent days, if we haven't prayed for this, if we haven't laid our own resources on the line, talent, and time, and treasure, that this might come to pass, then whenever you hear this phrase, take heart, Jesus is always at work to build and preserve his church. If that doesn't in some way affect us emotionally, if that doesn't in some way thrill us, then there's something wrong with us. I include myself in this, by the way, lest you think I'm pointing my bony Ebenezer finger at you. The wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there is always room for repentance. So if we don't care about this at all, if we don't care about our neighbors and Lewis Center and Delaware and Marion and Westerville and all over the rest of the place hearing the good news of Jesus and embracing him so that more and more people can hear, if we don't care about the fact that it's going on in Kenya and the United Arab Emirates and all over the world, there's something wrong with us. As long as these lives seem to be, and they seem long, and they seem difficult, the up and down of our finances, the struggle of jobs we don't love that much, 
worrying about our health, worrying about how our kids will turn out, these things which often occupy us so much. If Jesus has and is and will be in the business of rescuing lost sinners and making them his own and turning them from rebels into worshipers, don't you think he'll take care of your kids? Jesus will take care of your children. Jesus loves them way more than you do. Jesus will make sure that there's bread on your table. Jesus will make sure you have the jobs you need. Jesus will give you far more than you need. He calls us to care about the things that he cares about. And he cares about the redemption of sinners. And he makes sure it comes to pass. But, but how does he do that? We've already suggested this, but he does it through us. So I tell you, take heart. But I also say to you, be engaged. Jesus uses the obedience of his people to fulfill his gracious purposes. So what did those early disciples in Damascus do? These people who were scared of Paul? You would think naturally they would have an excuse to say, I am not going to go hang out with this guy. Now, I hear what Ananias has said. Ananias proclaims that Jesus appeared to him in a vision and told him that he should take care of Paul. And, and Paul was like a, a legitimate disciple now. But, but we're going to give this some time. We're going we're gonna to let Saul of Tarsus prove himself. But seemingly they just embraced him. So let's think about that for just a moment. The supernatural love that had been dispensed to them, they now dispensed to Saul of Tarsus. There's no other way to explain it. They were overwhelmed with the way Jesus had loved them and dying for them. And now horizontally, they take the vertical love that had come down to them and they extend it to him. Saul of Tarsus, Paul, he desperately needed companions. People to come alongside him and nurture his fledgling faith. What did these disciples do? They didn't make excuses. They jumped in there. They went to the needy guy. So herein lies a suggestion. Who are the needy people in your life? The people that are hard to love. The people that it's going to cost you to love. Love is not easy. It is so easy for us to take the easy path and say, this person is just like me. They laugh at the jokes I like. They like all my Instagram posts. They, they, they wear the same clothes as me. They like the same sports teams as me, whatever. They're easy to love. I want to be with them. You realize that's not what the church is? It's never been that. The church is not this homogenous collection of people that are just the same. Jesus and his kind providence brings people together that you consider to be weird, hard to love. And by the way, they think the same thing about you. What did these early disciples do? They did what was hard. They sacrificed. They put their own lives on the line to love this guy who desperately needed it. And, and we don't know any of their names other than Ananias. Did you realize that? Like, like none of them are known. But Paul was. He knew them by name. 
because they invested in him. They decided to be engaged and not for their fame. It's so easy for us to do the things that we think will bring us fame, will reward us. We don't even know their names. Their names are lost to history. Isn't that parenting? That's parenting, right? Nobody's going to remember us. Do you know the first names of your great-grandparents? Like great-grandchildren often don't even know the first names of their great-grandparents, let alone your great-great-grandparents. We will be forgotten. It was said a long time ago about, about Christian ministry, people who engage in vocational Christian ministry, that you should go somewhere obscure, preach the gospel, and die. That's not that glamorous, right? In an age of instant gratification and social media, we love to be liked. We want to be significant. But do you realize that when it really comes down to it, most of the significant people in history, nobody knows who they were? They didn't wait till they could find some avenue towards significance. They just did what was right. They loved when it wasn't easy. So take heart, parents, and be engaged. Do what is significant now, even if you will never be remembered as being significant. It's true in the church as well. Do, do people all over the country know that our church exists? No, they don't. Occasionally, I don't know how this comes up, or some algorithm on Facebook, I'm sure, that tracks what I care about and like, but, but every once in a while I'll see some post on, on Facebook that says, the top 30 American megachurches ranked. I don't know if they're calling them once a week and saying, what was your attendance Sunday? It doesn't matter, right? Like, like there's that part of me that, that honestly, that's evil, that wants to be significant, and thinks, maybe it'd be really great to be one of those guys, right? book deals and conference deals. I think you get a jet. I think like when you get into the, the top 30 club, you automatically get a jet. That'd be super cool, right? People don't know that we exist. But do you realize that's not the point? What are you doing with your talents, with your resources to invest in people here? Now, I have to say that most of you are. And we're so thankful for that. You're investing in, in kids' church or, or nursery or discipleship or small group or something. But all of us should be. You have something to give. It may not seem significant. You may not be a master theologian. You may not be the most charismatic person in the world. But you have something to give. So whether you're a musician or a teacher or, or a servant serving behind the scenes, you can use your life to bless these new dinner fellowships that we're beginning. You may not think that you're a good teacher. You may not think that you have the gift of giving or, or of speaking, but you know what you can do? You can open up your home to somebody and bless them. Be engaged. Jesus uses our obedience to bring about his, his sovereign purposes. These same disciples put their lives in the line when, when later... Paul came back three years later to Damascus and they saved his life. They put him in this big wicker hamper and tied some ropes to it and led him down over the wall. They could have been killed for that. Barnabas put his own life on the line, his own reputation on the line later when Paul came to Jerusalem. 
he was in good standing with the disciples, but, but he put his own reputation in line to, to vouch for Paul. And then Paul put his own life on the line again and again and again in preaching the gospel everywhere he had an opportunity. So much like in the rest of the scriptures, there is a tension between these two truths. Who is responsible for the fact that people all over the globe are still embracing the gospel of Jesus 2,000 years later? Who is responsible for that? Jesus is. As Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 16, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus wins. But why are we here? Because people like disciples in Damascus and Barnabas and Paul and Luther and your grandparents and your parents and your pastors in the past and kids, your your, your parents and your, your Christian school teachers and your kids' church teachers because they did what was right. They'll be forgotten. Most of us will. The Luthers and the Sauls of Tarsus, they're the exception to the rule. Most of us will live in obscurity and die in obscurity. But the Lord Jesus, who promises to build his church, does it through his people. So what do we want for the United Arab Emirates and Kenya and Marion and Delaware and Worthington and Westerville and Lewis Center and Powell? What do we want? We want more people to embrace the gospel of Jesus. Jesus will make sure that happens, but he does it through us. Now, if you're one of these logical contrarians, you can say, well, if I don't do it, somebody else will, right? So what does it matter? That is the wrong attitude. That is disobedience. Jesus has purpose that each of us be engaged. And we will take great delight when this comes to pass. Isn't there something incredibly special about laying your life on the line, extending and leveraging your resources for the good of another? What happier day in your home is there whenever your child trusts Jesus? What happier moment should there be for our church that when somebody trusts Jesus, when a person experiences the waters of baptism, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, when a husband learns to love his wife more sacrificially, when a wife learns to trust Jesus and follow her husband's leadership, when each of us learns to turn from our idols which allure us and instead turn to Jesus with our affections. Those moments are subtle, but they are many. And we all have a role to play in them. And may the Lord Jesus, through the comfort of the Spirit, as we see in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, be engaged and be trusting that Jesus will enable us and will help us toward this sin. So I say to you, take heart. Jesus is always at work to build and preserve his church. But be engaged each of you in your own way. Jesus uses the obedience of his people, you and me, to fulfill his gracious purposes. Jesus is in charge, but Jesus uses us. Let's follow his lead.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now we pray that we will take heart 